Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Michael Grinick, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Happy to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. This is going to be an interesting conversation because I don't know a lot about the topic that we're going to, going to talk about. Um, and I just want to learn more about it. And I think there's a lot of listeners that are with us uh, today that are probably in that same boat. Uh, so we're going to talk about those those things that we may not know about that are really important and we should know about. Uh, uh, Michael Grinick is a practicing structural engineer at the engineering firm Le Measure, based in Boston. And he has developed a breadth of structural design and management experience on many of the firm's most complex projects, ranging from educational and healthcare facilities to high-rise residential and office towers. Mike also spearheads LeMessure's sustainability practice, in part by serving as chair of uh, the Structural Engineering Institute's SE 2050 Commitment Program, which states all structural engineers shall understand, reduce, and ultimately eliminate embodied carbon in their projects by 2050. Um, he's also the chair of the SEI, which is the Structural Engineers Institute, Engineering Institute's Disaster Resilience Committee. Um, and so I want to talk about embodied carbon. That's a term that, you know, over the last five, 10 years, we've been hearing a lot about it. Uh, I'm a busy guy. I'm an architect. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm doing lots of things. So I never really focused on what this is. Um, 
But as an architect, it's something that we should all know about. And this is something that Mike knows about a little bit, and he wants to share with us. And I, and, and I want him to come and talk to us at a really sort of basic level. What is it? Why is it bad? And why is this something that we should reduce or ultimately eliminate in our world? We have control over that. And so, Mike, I want to talk about that. But before we do that, I want to learn more about you. I want to learn more about uh, your, your life, your career. What inspired you to choose structural engineering? Who or what inspired you uh, to get to where you are? What's your origin story? So we can start way, way, way back uh, right. to when I was uh, playing under my, my deck growing up. I was probably eight or nine years old and I was playing with, uh, you know, Tonka trucks and we, we, my, my neighbors and I, we would build these quote unquote cities. They were probably tiny footprints, uh, looking back, but, uh, and so I, you know, had a construction company and, and, you know, quote unquote construction company. And we were, you know, digging and making these cities. And, and my, my mom at one point said, you know, maybe you should be an architect. Right. And I said, huh, well, what is that? And then I sort of, I don't know how I figured it out because there was no internet then, but I, I figured out that, you know, architect was the ones that designed the buildings and, you know, made, you know, how it looks and the shape. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. But then I, you know, as I got a little older, I, I realized that they don't design like the skeleton of the, of the, of the building. And, and that was what, you know, really intrigued me a little bit more. And at the same time, I was developing this kind of appreciation for bridges. Right. And so you can yeah. see bridges, you drive over bridges uh, and the structure is all exposed. And so um, when I went into, went to college, I went into the, you know, civil engineering department at Syracuse and uh, realized that I just loved structural engineering and the, you know, statics and understanding the equations and physics and all of that. And, and I was really getting into uh, bridges. So it was really through bridges that I, that I found sort of a passion for, for structural engineering. Uh, and then uh, what I did is I, I went back to Tufts University to get my master's degree. And I met my thesis advisor there, who was a structural engineer, practicing structural engineer on buildings. And he started talking about uh, earthquakes and how buildings are designed to resist earthquake forces. And that just like lit me up. So then I, I sort of, I, so I didn't say, I don't want to say I abandoned, but I sort of pushed bridges to the side and I got really intrigued by buildings and how they behave during earthquakes. So that's what I ended up getting my, my master's degree in. Um, but, but sort of fast forward in getting towards the embodied carbon side of things, I was working on a, a, a 2 million square foot development in Boston. Really cool. I mean, and from an engineering standpoint, I was just super excited, high rise buildings and, and kind of what, what all structural engineers want to work on. Um, but it was around, you know, a couple of years into that project where I all, was also starting to watch a lot of documentaries on, on the environment and, and like even getting into things like agriculture, the impact of agriculture on the environment and all of that sort of stuff. So at one point during this project, which was starting to get on in years and I was like, all right, you know, it, it was losing its like, I was, you know, excitement about the structural part. And then I, I started thinking to myself, what kind of impact am I having here? Like, what kind of impact does this project have? And it was around that time that I realized uh, that, one, you know, to produce one ton of steel, you emit one ton of CO2 into the atmosphere. And I was like, this, this is a problem because that particular project had 20,000 tons of structural steel on it. So yeah, you start adding up the numbers. Exactly. So, so then I started, that's when I really started to, to sort of throw my, my um, energy into understanding the impact of the structure and buildings and the built environment. And then it, then it sort of, you know, took off from there. And that was about 
you know, 2016, 2017, where I was really, I really dove into it. Yeah. So let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, because at first I didn't know what that term meant, embodied carbon. You know, I understand carbon. I, you know, I understand the carbon in our environment is not a good thing. It's not helping things. Um, but I don't understand what, or didn't understand what embodied carbon is. So let's get really basic. What is it? Yeah, so so it's it's uh, what you would call the carbon dioxide equivalent of the production, um, the installation, the trucking, anything that's embodied um, um, within the building of a building. Okay, and so that is everything from initial raw material extraction. So you literally determine how much carbon dioxide equivalent is is emitted. Uh, at that point, and then you track it through the trucking of that material to say a rolling mill for steel, and then the rolling mill itself, how much energy is it burning uh, to produce the steel, right? So there's a CO2 emissions there. Then you're trucking it to the site, which has a CO2 emissions, then you're installing it at the site and so on and so forth. So it's it's the, the carbon dioxide equivalent um, of all of the, the different processes to, uh, construct and eventually demolish a building. So it's sort it the so-called embodied it's embodied in the materials. Yeah. That, when you look at it like that, it's unbelievable how impactful what we do is on the environment. Yeah, it, it's true. And, um, you know, the, the challenge that we've been having now is that, you know, the world recognizes that we have to limit the CO2 emissions to the to the planet but historically no one's been really paying a lot of attention to the building materials and so you know the focus historically has been on operational energy right and where that's coming from the fossil fuel based energy sources and all of that but um the the what what people are realizing is that it's only half the the story okay so if you take the total carbon of a building half of it is operational the other half is embodied Okay. And so uh, it hasn't been until the last several years that people have started saying, well, oh, geez, like we really ought to be paying attention to this. And oh, by the way, basically all of the, the, the embodied carbon emitted to the atmosphere happens on day one of the building. So, so it's a sunk cost. You can't do anything about it once the building is built. And so um, I always imagine that eventually the, the uh, operational side of things is, is going to become so efficient that over time your operation will be zero, but you would right. have already had that sunk cost on day one. And uh, just to put it into a little bit more context for structural engineering, half of all of the new embodied carbon of a building comes from the structure. And so now all of a sudden everyone's looking at the structural engineers and they're saying, well, what are you guys doing? Yeah. <laughs> right. And so there's been a huge ramp up in education and trying to understand this and, and how, you know, is it even possible to reduce it? And, and, you know, oh, by the way, the UN says that we have to get to zero by 2050, like total carbon operational and embodied in like 30 years. Okay. So it's a huge, huge uh, problem. And, um, but also exciting at the same time, a lot of opportunities. Right. Right. It, it's, it's, that's a very interesting what you just said. So half of the carbon comes from operating the building, right? So mm -hmm. many of us understand that, right? That, that there's, there's energy going into that building, whether it's electricity or whether it's, uh, fossil fuels, it's, it's by operating that building, there is an impact with carbon. Um, and many of us are working at trying to make those, uh, that carbon be reduced in, in sustainable energy and the way we design the buildings. 
uh, and those buildings are becoming more efficient and ultimately will become, like you said, Mike, they'll be zero, right? That, that, that they will, they will uh, have zero impact uh, in terms of carbon. And that's probably pretty easy to understand how we do that, right? How do we get there? Uh, but the other half is embodied. And what you just said was that that means everything from digging it out of the ground to transporting it to a facility to produce it and then the production costs and then getting it from that facility to the place where it's going to be distributed and then from the distribution all the way to the place where it's going to be built. And then there's embodied carbon in the machines that build it and the, the and it goes on and on and on and on and on. And then half of that embodied carbon is all structural right, right. so so um, that's huge right so it's under, it's easy to understand the first part right the the first half the operational really difficult now that we understand what it is and they we want to take that and go th- from that to zero mm-hmm. in 30 years how do we even start to reduce that how do we build buildings without producing carbon how do we reduce it and ultimately eliminate it so um, a cu- couple things. Actually, I just want to give a, 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 a tiny caveat to when I yep. said half of embodied carbon, that's based on a time scale up to 2050. If you stretch that, that time scale out another 100 years, then it would be less of the percentage because operational is longer right. life. But I just sure. want yep. to make that yep. clear. No problem. Um, so so there's, I mean, there's several things to do. Uh, number one, on the design side, you can attempt to to make more efficient buildings. So just simply using less material. Okay. So an example of that for, for the architects would be, and I, and I would plead with the architects listening is that if you can avoid doing column transfers, okay. So a column transfer, you know, you think of a column vertical element that goes from the top of the building all the way down to the foundation. Often um, we've seen like in buildings where like, if you're doing a residential, but the lower level is retail, the column that comes down through the residential won't work for the retail space below. So often we'll put a transfer girder in there. So that transfer girder has to be very large and it's usually spanning a long distance and there's a lot of extra material. So just by trying to find ways to make the columns come straight down, you can have a much more efficient building. Uh, But that's only gonna get you, you know, a certain, a certain, portion of the, of the reductions you're trying to get. Then you look at, um, at a, from a system standpoint. Okay. So, uh, if I do a residential building, do I make it out of concrete? Do I make it out of steel? Do I make it out of, out, out of mass timber, for example, mm-hmm. and you kind of look at it holistically and I say, well, you know, I could do it out of mass timber, but I'm going to need more columns, which then, you know, causes issues for mechanical systems and all of that. So you look at it holistically and you try to, at the very early stages, pick a system that is least impactful when considering a variety of other um, design considerations. But really um, what happens after that is getting into the materials themselves. So for example, concrete. All right, so concrete uh, gains its strength um, with a combination of uh, Portland cement and uh, uh, water aggregate, and and that's you know that's where the the strength comes from. It turns out that the production of Portland cement is responsible for seven to ten percent of the world's CO two emissions just using Portland cement. Okay, and if you think about like every yard of concrete has about six hundred pounds of cement in it, and uh, you know for every um, a ton of cement produced, it's another one ton of CO2. But luckily, what we can do is we can use other products that are similar to Portland, have the same uh, um, sort of uh, uh, chemical reaction capacity that Portland has, 
Um, and some of those would be byproducts of industrial processes. So for example, you can take slag, uh, which is from um, the steel uh, production is a byproduct of steel, or you can use fly ash, which is a byproduct of coal uh, burning plants. And you can, you can take those materials and, and uh, replace the Portland in the mix. So we've seen an ability to uh, reduce the embodied carbon of concrete by say up to 30% just by replacing with those industrial products. There are also other products that are coming online where you can actually uh, inject this uh, CO2 into the concrete Okay, during the ready mix phase when it's like just the wet um, consistency, and that will react with the limestone that's in the mix and actually produce a, a stronger concrete, which then in turn uh, requires less Portland cement. So you can keep finding ways to reduce the Portland cement. And so, and those technologies, you know, the, that one is available. Um, it's not, I would not say it's at scale yet, but slag and flash is de definitely at scale. And we can do that. We've been doing that for years, frankly, uh, but finding ways to go above and beyond what's typical um, is something that, that uh, structural engineers and contractors and architects should be aware of. Um, so right then and there with today's technology, we can reduce the concrete impact by 30%. The biggest bottleneck is frankly, uh, who's the champion who's going to be pushing for this, right? It's different than what everyone's used to. Okay. So in the building profession, things tend to <laughs> change slowly, particularly with structural engineers. Um, and so uh, you need to see test data, you need to see your results and so on and so forth. But the biggest biggest bottleneck is just who's going to be pushing it, who's going to be the champion, who's going to educate the design team and the contractors and the owners uh, to, to take it on. So that, you know, concrete, that's one example. Um, uh, another material that has tremendous promise is, is mass timber. So mass timber is basically engineered wood products, okay, that are, you know, glued together and they have um, pretty, pretty uh, substantial structural capacity, okay. The thing with timber, as people know, is that when a tree grows, it's sequestering CO2 out of the atmosphere, and then you, you, you harvest it, cut it up, and then put that wood into a building. And it's basically, that building is acting as a carbon sink. Okay, so you're storing CO2 in the building and during the life of the building, another tree is growing to grab CO2 out of the atmosphere. And mass timber, um, there are some code challenges and adoption, but I will tell you that we, in the last couple of years, uh, several architects are asking us, can we do mass timber? Can we do this out of mass timber? And the embodied carbon of, um, uh, a building with mass timber is significantly lower. And in some cases it can actually be negative. Okay. It actually can be, be a, a true carbon sink. The caveat to all of that, unfortunately, is what happens at the end of life of this building. Okay. So all that timber that's storing CO2, if somebody for some reason decides to burn it all, <laughs> the CO2 yeah. goes back into the atmosphere. Okay. So there are, there are, you know, that those are two examples, mass timber and concrete, where you can make substantial reductions uh, in embodied carbon. Um, I think, I think again, the champion who's going to be pushing for it, there are some cost implications that the owners have to be aware of. Um, but we are seeing a groundswell of, of momentum in this area. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the opportunity to make these reductions. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. As architecture demand increases toward pre-pandemic levels and beyond, how are you and your architecture firm keeping up? RCAT is here to help. RCAT.com offers several free tools to help architecture and design firms like yours get work done faster. 
Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right products for your projects. And download BIM, CAD, and specifications right there on the same page without needing to pay or register. It's free. RCAT.com also offers product videos, catalogs, green reports, product certification information, outline and short form specification generation, and so much more. Visit RCAT.com today. RCAT.com is your one-stop solution to help increase your productivity and get more projects done faster. That's RCAT.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with financial reports, communication, and notifications. My favorite feature in FreshBooks is the automated invoice reminders. I think sending invoices and getting paid is one of the biggest barriers to our success as entrepreneur architects. Who has the time? But if we don't send out the invoices, we don't get paid, right? FreshBooks makes it easy to send out your invoices and get paid fast online with a click of a button. And when your client doesn't pay you on time, FreshBooks will send them a friendly email reminder through a simple system that you control. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid faster. Go to entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter EntreeArchitect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. It's interesting. I mean, what's every time I have one of these conversations, it's, it, it sort of opens up doors in my mind. And, and it really is just a matter of understanding, which is why I love having conversations like this at a very basic level. Um, just understanding what it is and why it's bad and how we can reduce it. Um, you know, us as small firm architects, we're not going to be able to uh, make it go away, right? We're not going to eliminate it from our planet, but we can have an impact on it. And just knowing that there is a, a better way of doing it, right? And your first su suggestion was to just use less material, right? And so Absolutely. being aware of that and saying, okay, can we do it this way or that way, um, which is using more material and making decisions like that. Right. And that, that is the, you know, it, it, if, if talk about low hanging fruit, I mean, that's the one that people, everybody can get behind. Okay? Right. Because less material is less cost. All right. Yep. It simplifies things. It just sometimes takes a little bit of extra work on the design side of things to make sure that these simplifications work with the program. I think sometimes, um, look, projects, uh, your architects are going to notice. I mean, projects happen so fast these days. I mean, it's like, go, go, go. And sometimes it just takes a few, a few moments where you take a step back and say, okay, is this really the best approach? And, and just in those moments, you can find savings of, of different materials. Um, and it does require more collaboration. I mean, I mean, you know, and, and more upfront thinking that sometimes, 
uh, we sort of are just in a mode where you're going, right? And so once in a while, if you step back and say, let's just let's just have a take a minute here and, and check. Is this does this make sense? Do we really need that transfer girder, right? Is there anything? Is it is there you know anything we can do to eliminate that transfer girder? Um, it, you know that that it, it can go a long way. You're right, and that's that's the mentality to have. Uh, before you get into the, the complexities of, of new materials and whatnot, use less. And I would also argue adaptive reuse is, is the way to go, right? So, um, you know, I'm in here, you know, we're here in Boston, there's, a, there's several uh, old buildings, okay? And so if you can find a way to not build the new building and just reuse the existing one, that's really, I mean, that would be ideal, all right? So so mod modest up, uh, upgrades to the building, for, um, systems and, and maybe you have to do some some structural retrofits but uh, at the end of the day um, from an embodied carbon standpoint leaps and bounds better than than building a new building yeah and i think it also needs to become part of our workflow it needs to become part of our our process right you had mentioned that this is we're, we're working really fast doing things the way we've always done them and that's because we have a workflow right that that either it's very specifically designed workflow or it's just the way we've always done it. And so this is the way we do it. Uh, when you design a building with steel, there's a way that we do it in order to just do it quickly because that's the way we've always done it. And so by putting something into your design process that stops and says, okay, sh we should check this, make sure that this is the best way to do it from a carbon point of view, um, allows us to stop and think about, is there an alternative to doing this? Is there something that any, are there any, um, uh, processes or steps in your process as a structural engineer that you've, uh, in, uh, you know, developed in your own process to make sure that you're being aware of these things. Yeah. So, so it's funny cause I was just talking to an architect this morning and she was mentioning, um, you know, how, how frankly frustrating it's been for her to make headway on some of her projects on embodied carbon, specifically structural concrete. And, and so what I told her, I said, well, what we've had some success doing is at the design development phase, no later than the initiation of design development, we initiate, we the structural engineer initiate a low carbon concrete kickoff call. And we, at, we require the CM, the architect, the sustainability consultant, us and uh, an owner's representative to be on the call, okay? Because to your point about workflow, unfortunately, it's just not, in the in the front of people's minds to think about low carbon yet okay and so we've right. got to do it from day one and the reason we have this conversation early is because there are there are several implications Let, let's just say you went to a extremely high portland cement concrete mix so from a scientific standpoint the concrete itself has a lower uh, what's called a lower heat of hydration meaning um you know there's less heat generated and so it might take a little bit longer for that concrete to gain strength okay that might have schedule implications that if you are bringing this up at the bid phase or the start of ca you're never going to get it in there it's never it's just too late yeah. but if you have the conversation up front early and say well if you use that high cement replacement mix here you know, there's, and the, and the CM is on board. Okay. I understand. I can adjust my scheduling, my, my sequence of installation of the concrete. And actually over the long term, over the full schedule, it will have no impact. 
you know, you, you, you can't have that conversation when they're digging the hole. It's got to be uh, well, well up front. The other thing is, is like some of these um, mixture, you know, admixtures to the concrete, like a slag or flash might have an implication to either the finish or the, the look of the concrete. And so you want to talk to the architect up front and say, look, is any of this concrete going to be exposed in the final condition? Oh, yes, yes, we have these, you know, architecturally exposed concrete walls. Okay, well, there's something that you should know. When you put slag in the mix, it might give that concrete a slight white sort of tinge to it. Is that going to be okay, right? And so, again, you can't have that conversation when they're digging the hole. It's got to be up front. And so uh, just to broadly answer your question, initiating these low concrete or low carbon concrete or low carbon structural options early in the project and just informing everybody and putting it out there and, and, and having no, you know, just, just, just getting it all out there in front of everybody and having those key uh, stakeholders in the, in the room is, is so important. And it, it may be that as an architect, you need to, maybe your structural engineer isn't into this just yet. Well, maybe the architect needs to identify who's gonna be the champion to push for something like that, right? Or ask the structural engineer, hey, can we do this? Or have you looked into that? And so um, it's, truly, it's truly a team effort, but at the end of the day, you do need one person who's gonna be you know, sort of pushing. Yeah, it can't it can't be a surprise, right? This has to be every, the the team needs to be on board with this, especially the client, right? The client has to has to sign off on this. This, this is something that's important. This is something that we're going to do because this is going to impact schedule. It's going to impact cost. It's going to impact design. It's going to impact everything. Um, and if if the client is is not for it or surprised, <laughs> which is even exactly. worse, uh, you never want a surprised client. It's never a good thing. Um, then, then you have a problem. And so this has to be brought up very early in the process. Yeah, I agree. And I would, I would say the earlier it's brought up in the process, the least cost ad it's going to be. Okay. The later you bring it up, it's, it's, you know, not to be cynical, but you know, bids have been awarded and all that. If you, if you start asking for changes, I mean, you're, you're, it's, it just won't be in a competitive bid situation. So you're going to get uh, a big change order potentially, uh, the earlier you talk about it, um, I, you know, you bring up, you bring up the owner and I, I do want to say if the owner is the, the key, okay. You know, the designers can be, you know, I can go into a meeting and be chirping their ear off, but if they don't follow right. or they don't agree, you're, it's never going to happen. And so what, what I think in the fast paced mode, people are rightfully focused on cost, right. And schedule. And that, you know, that's obviously critically important. Uh, and so in those modes, sometimes they just push aside. Oh, no, no, we, we don't have time to, but if you, if you take, go that extra mile and try to convince them to have a, a follow-up conversation, grab coffee with them, you know, then they kind of, it sinks in. Right. And so sometimes it takes a few, a few attempts. Um, and, and, and actually I, I just want to balance this all with the fact um, they're starting to come to us now. So, so like the last several years, it's been like the designers and the consultants may be pushing, but we've actually seen more now owners because they're all starting to, to get it and they're all starting to pay attention. So um, the other sort of side of the coin is that as an architect or a structural engineer, you need to be prepared now. It's no, it's no longer about just finding the energy to convince somebody. It's like, well, no, what if they came to you with questions? Are you, are you ready to answer them? So it, and it is happening very fast, as you said. So um the industry is just, it's, it's trying to respond, you know, and I would say the last couple of years and probably the next few years will be a little messy in terms of trying to get this into the regular workflow, but I'm convinced it'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I also will find interesting 
are the innovations that will be developed because of this, right? You're talking about innovations in concrete development. Um, that'll happen all over, right? It's, you're seeing that in, in solar development. You're seeing that in, in uh, uh, all different all different areas of our of our built environment where if it wasn't uh, brought up as a challenge like this, saying, hey, these, this is important, this is something we need to do, um, then those, those, those innovations don't happen, right? They're, the products don't get developed, and they are, many of them are better than the products they're replacing. Sure, um, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, no, no. I, I would say I, I feels like every week there's a new concrete admixture coming yeah. out to, to 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 really reduce the carbon uh, in the mix. That I I will say from a structural standpoint, it is a little challenging because uh, some of these products have to go through this process of getting certified, getting mm-hmm. the ASTM numbers, and all, and that takes time. So. You know, it's not that we're not open to them, but frankly, when you sign the affidavit, you, you know, all the products in the building have to have gone through that process for you to feel comfortable to do that. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg, like like the the structural engineers and the architects are demanding these things. So we're sending market signals out there. They're producing them. They're coming back to us and saying, well, what about this? And I'll, and then we say, oh, sounds good, but is it, you know, has it gone through the the requisite testing and, and you know, all the due diligence that needs to happen uh, uh, to make us feel comfortable to put it in into a building. Okay. But it's happening quickly. And I, I really think that, um, uh, certain companies are responding. You know, here, here's an example. So there's a there's a product out there that um, I mentioned the the injection of the CO2 in the mix, and I and I talked to some local ready mix suppliers about that, and um, one of them pushed back, but in a in a way that actually gave me confidence. They they said, no no no, we're we're doing our own R and D. We're actually going to be producing something better because they don't want to necessarily use that product. So, um, in a, in a weird way, this, um, I shouldn't say in a weird way, in a good way, there's a competitive aspect of things, yeah. right? So, so they, you, you really, I would say you really want to try to tap into people's type A personalities, um, to make some movement and find, uh, I would honestly say, find your allies because not everyone's going to be on board, but if you can find a few allies that have the energy and the network, uh, I think that's, that's uh, critically important. Yeah. The other innovation that's very interesting that I see happening already is software and technology that we're using to design buildings. And and right now, what you're talking about is complicated, right? We have to go and look at every single piece of uh, material that we're using and do a calculation and, and do all of that manually, essentially. Um, I'm seeing tools that are already being developed that are doing these calculations automatically. Eventually, it's going to be part of our design software where you're designing a building and you're seeing the, the carbon, you know, output right there in real time as you're developing the building. So you can see how much impact you're having. Uh, and by clicking a button, reduce it by choosing a different material. For sure. Yeah, no, that it's a great point. The, the, that response has been impressive. Um, uh, a little bit, you know, touch and go, but, but you're absolutely right. There is software early. out there. Yeah, yeah early. It, it is in the early phases, but, but honestly, like also uh, developing quickly. So I don't, you know, I see in a couple of years yeah. these to be part of the workflow. You know, regularly. Yep. Uh, so I think it's I think it's a great point. I think from a structural standpoint, um, you've got to be the structural engineers need to be coming prepared to look at different systems and not just providing the owner or the 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 CM or whoever's estimating the project early on with the material quantities, but also what is the embodied carbon. 
Okay. So it's like a third piece of the, yeah. of the puzzle. And I think people, um, I, I will tell you the structural engineering profession is starting to respond uh, to that. And that's also part of what we're doing with, um, with SE 2050. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. I appreciate you coming by and, and, and giving us a heads up on this and teaching us at the basic level and what this is and, and why it's important and, and some of the things that we can do as, as small firm architects. So I appreciate you, uh, uh, spending some time with us here today before, uh, go ahead. No, no, I just want to say, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. You're welcome. Before we wrap up, I'd like to uh, ask you my final question that I ask everybody. Uh, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Oh, that, uh, you know, uh, a, um, for better business for tomorrow. Um, I, I honestly, I would go back to the, the success that, that I've had is, is again, going back, it might sound simple, but going back and finding the, the, your, your allies, the ones that are going to support you. And, and help you and be on your side and encourage you. Um, I think identifying those people um, are gonna, would certainly uh, improve your business uh, in the future. Very good answer. Michael Grinick is his name. Uh, LeMessure is the firm. You can learn more about the firm at lemessure.com. You can learn more about the commitment program, program, the SE 2050 commitment program at se2050.org. Uh, we'll have links to that at the show notes, so don't worry about how to spell the measure. Uh, it'll be there. Um, SC2050.org is where you can go to learn more about embodied carbon and how to reduce it. If you have a question specifically for Mike, um, his email is mikegrinick at lemessure.com. We'll have that link also on the uh, on the show notes. So just go to the show notes for this episode, and there's, there'll be a bunch of resources over there for you. Mike, I appreciate you for all you're doing, your commitment to this uh, specific commitment program, uh, coming by here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Really, really appreciate it. Had a lot of fun. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect Podcast will grow to serve thousands more architects just like you. Thanks to our sponsors, FreshBooks and RCAT for their support of this episode. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. Ready to edit business resources, live monthly business training for architects, a supportive architect community, and Simple Systems, our business system program developed for you, the small firm architect. It's all waiting for you at Entree Architect Academy membership, including AIA Continuing Education Learning Units. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect friends at entrearchitect.com slash join. Enroll today at entrearchitect.com slash join. Thanks for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) So for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.